This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and we're going to be talking about recovery residences today. We're going to start out by defining what a recovery residence is and kind of differentiate it from some other sorts of halfway houses. We'll explore their effectiveness, what the research has to say, and learn more about what happens in a recovery residence because there are a lot of misconceptions about what happens. And, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so... So a recovery residence is a broad term describing a sober, safe, and healthy living environment that promotes re recovery from alcohol and other drug use and associated problems. So recovery residences can be appropriate, if you will, for people with co-occurring disorders. But the main thing that we're looking at is when we're talking about a recovery residence, we really are talking about a place where the Everybody in there, at least one of their diagnoses, if you will, or one of the things that they're in recovery from, is some sort of an addiction. So that's where we differentiate from some other halfway houses, for example, where you're talking about prison transition programs, where the person may not be actively in recovery or even ready to approach recovery from any substance issues whether or not they have them. So there are different types of halfway houses that are out there. But what we're going to talk about today is exclusively the recovery residence that's geared towards people with at least one of their diagnoses being an addiction of some sort. Recovery residences offer peer-to-peer -peer recovery support with some providing professionally delivered clinical services, all aimed at promoting long-term recovery and improvement in physical mental, spiritual, and social well-being that will support their recovery as they transition to living independently. Okay, so that's the boilerplate that we have down there for recovery residences. Let's break that down a little bit. Some recovery residences, your level one recovery residences, are democratically run by peers for peers. There is no clinical stuff there. Oxford Houses are your prime example of level one recovery residences. And they can work really, really well if you've got some people with some sustained sobriety, some sustained recovery under their belt, working as mentors and house managers. You don't want to have a recovery residence that's all people who just left treatment um, 15 days ago or yesterday because you need to have some aging in there. If you've ever made sourdough bread, you start a sourdough bread, you have some starter, and that's the stuff that's been allowed to ferment and form into the stuff that makes the sourdough bread sourdough. And you regularly feed that with new stuff, but you have to have that starter culture there. And that's what we're talking about in a recovery residence. You really need to have a good stable starter culture when you're starting a recovery residence, especially a level one. And we want to make sure that what people are looking at is going to help them improve physically, mentally, spiritually, and socially. So they're in this environment, and it's not just a place to hang their hat. They're hopefully going to improve their communication skills. They're going to improve their coping skills, engage in social learning. They are going to be expected to have a job or whatever they're capable of as far as employment's concerned. They're going to be expected 
to start trying to take care of themselves and physically getting enough sleep, eating a nutritional diet, and they're going to learn from one another. Now, level ones have a lot less intervention, so some of some of the progress is going to be less in those places than maybe a level four, but we'll talk about that event in, in a few minutes. So how effective are these things? If you take people from treatment and you plop them into this recovery residence with people who've gotten out of treatment within the last two years, how effective are these? The primary studies on Oxford houses, and this is sort of where we get most of our information, indicates that there's a lot of progress. And the studies interviewed residents at 12 months after entering the recovery residence and 24 months to find out how effective are these things. There was also a sober living house in California that interviewed residents at an 18-month follow-up. So these studies are really looking at the long haul. When we talk about recovery, when we talk about especially substance abuse recovery and relapse, relapse is really prominent, unfortunately, in that first 12 months. So if people are sustaining their sobriety and sustaining their recovery at 12, 18, and 24 months, that is real progress. And we want to look and say, what's different? What's going on here? These studies documented significant longitudinal improvements, including gains in employment as people become more recovered, as they work through the process. And I'll stop here and say, when people are in recovery, they go into treatment. Treatment is grand, but treatment does not last that long. So when they get out of treatment, they are still likely dealing with trauma. They're still likely dealing with mental health issues, whether it was mental health stuff caused by the addiction or it was mental health stuff that preexisted or happened during the addiction. They're still probably dealing with that. They're also still dealing with something called post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Post-acute withdrawal syndrome is really challenging, and it's a huge trigger for relapse for a lot of people because after, in a year or so, after they quit using, their brain and their body is still recovering, and there will be days, and sometimes a week at a time, when all of a sudden they feel like crap again and they start having cravings to use and some of those old thought patterns come back and their emotions are kind of on roller coasters. We need to normalize that. And one of the things that recovery residences do is help normalize this for people and help them develop the tools to get through those little sputters, if you will, of that post-acute withdrawal while their body and brain is recovering from the addiction. Once people have gotten to, to the place where they're feeling good, and especially once they've gotten through that first year and post-acute withdrawal is pretty much behind them, but even before that, they're feeling good more days than not, and they're developing skills to deal with the days they don't feel so well, they're going to be able to be employed more effectively because they're not going to be calling in sick or heaven forbid, relapsing. Family and social functioning is going to start to improve, partly because they're feeling better, partly because, as we'll learn in this, about in the social model, the recovery residence really teaches residents to communicate effectively and 
to be able to set and hold and maintain boundaries and all that other kind of stuff that they learned in treatment, but learning it and doing it are two completely different things. Any of us who've been to conferences can tell you that, you know, you may have gone to the best conference in the world on motivational interviewing and you learned a ton, but then when it comes down to putting the whatever analogy I'm looking for, um, to, to actually doing it and doing it in session, it's a lot different. And we need to work on practicing using those tools because we're used to doing it our old way. Not that this, our old way is bad, but we've got to break some of those ingrained habits. So we take these new tools and we've got to remember, oh, I've got this tool I can use right here. So recovery residences really are an extension, sort of a big step down, but a step down, if you will. And it's in enabling people, I shouldn't use that word, but it's enabling people to be in an environment that is positive, where everybody's practicing these tools. Many of my clients, if not all of them, and there, there were probably exceptions, when I worked in residential, they would work their butts off when they were in residential treatment, but their family really saw them as the identified patient. So the family did nothing in terms of their own recovery process and getting people to buy into the fact that this is a family issue can be challenging, even if they have to come to mandatory family education, yada, yada, yada. So recovery residences can be very helpful for people whose family of origin or residents of origin, whatever you want to call it, is not conducive to sustained recovery lifestyle. Maybe they can go back there eventually once they're, they feel like they've really gotten their recovery land legs. But this is a, an intermediary that gives them a safe place to land and start implementing these tools. So obviously, I'm a huge fan of recovery resonances. Um, social support for recovery, recovery self-efficacy, that is the belief that they can do this, they can stay clean, they can stay sober, they can stay happy. And length of stay in the treatment program, or in the, I'm sorry, in the recovery residence, predicted change in cumulative cumulative recovery so people's ability to feel like they were able to stay in recovery and feel like they had the recovery tools really down pat and they felt good about their recovery and the people who had the most social support and healthy social support generally were in a recovery residence for six months or longer it takes a while you don't learn, I mean, even just breaking a simple habit, like biting your fingernails, it's not something that happens overnight. It takes a while. Something as complex as coping with life on life's terms and dealing with trauma triggers and all that other stuff, that takes a while. So six months is really a very commendable period of time for somebody to basically build Rome, if you if you want to say, say it that way. Rome wasn't built in a day. You're not going to master all this stuff in the 30 days you're in treatment. But if you put treatment and then you continue to practice it over and over and over again for six months or longer, you're probably going to see a lot more effectiveness of those tools. Recovery residences are divided into levels of support based on the type as well as the intensity and duration of the support that they offer. 
So level one, like I talked about earlier, the Oxford House model, democratically run. There are regular random drug screens. There are house meetings at least once a week. And participants are required to participate in some sort of self-help activity. Now, some recovery residences require that it is a 12-step program. Other recovery residences are more open to 12-step programs, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery. As long as you're in a recovery program that meets X number of days a week, it meets the criteria. So recovery residences have a lot of latitude in what they can require of their of their residents and it's important for people when they're looking for recovery residences to ask what are the requirements for this am i going to be able to be on any sort of medications some people are on psychotropic medications some people aren't am i going there are some recovery residences that are accepting of people who are on methadone or buprenorphine or suboxone so those are questions that have to be asked but the level one is very independent, if you will. Um, in level two, the monitored, there's a house manager and there's peer-run groups in addition to level one activities. So in addition to having house meetings and your random drug screens and mandatory participation in self-help groups, there are peer-run groups generally once a night, like around dinner time or something, there will be a peer-run group. But there is also a house manager, and that house manager may or may not be in recovery. Usually, it's better, in my opinion, if they are. Usually, they are. But the house manager has significant sobriety under their belt and significant tools and can make sure that everything is going the way it's supposed to. So if you have clients, especially clients with dual disorders, they may do better in a level two environment where there is a house manager who can pick up on some of the signs, the relapse warning signs that may start to come out. Level three house um, recovery residences are supervised. They employ paid staff who provide on-site services such as linkage to resources in the community. There's an administrative oversight for the service providers. Often there's state required state licensing emphasis on life skill development and all of this has kind of become known and it's unfortunately become sullied in in the media but it has become known as the florida model um, because it combines intensive outpatient type services with a residence in so a sober living house so i don't want you to get soured on that because the florida model has a lot of amazing aspects to it there are a lot of consumers participants, whatever you want to call them, who don't necessarily need to be in residential. But IOP is not enough. And they need a little bit more. They need a safe place to be. So this provides housing and administrative supervision. Most often in level three, the people go off-site somewhere in order to get their IOP uh, intensive outpatient services and then come back there was a program that they started where I used to work right at, as I was leaving where they had bought a motel that was adjoining our property and they turned those hotel rooms into 
a level three recovery residence and then the residents would walk over each day and participate in IOP therapy so it was really awesome because it provided people that safe place that's the quandary that I used to face so many times when I was doing assessments on people because I really felt like they had what it took to stay clean and sober in some sort of IOP or PHP if they had a safe place to live because the place they were living was just riddled with drugs, violence, something. And that was always the sticking point. You know, I think everything else, if everything else was there and you had a safe place to live, IOP would be a no-brainer. But since you don't have a safe, stable place to be, then we're looking at residential. So we had a lot of people in residential. So the Florida model really looked at moving away from that, partly because insurance start, started putting more restrictions on residential, and we won't get into all the legalities. But I truly believe that the Florida model is an awesome, can be an awesome program if it is run effectively and ethically. Enough said. Level four, residential treatment, and this is more often what we would think of as a therapeutic community. Residential treatment programs are more structured than level three and provide a variety of on-site clinical services. So participants don't have to leave the house at all. It's right there, right in their face. They're going to be having meetings, self-help groups, counseling groups, drug testing. All that stuff is right in, in their facility. The psychiatrist comes there. There is no having to leave. Obviously, there's lots of licensed staff and, and stuff here. And each one of these levels gets more expensive. I will say, though, that I have seen when I've been doing utilization reviews that some insurance companies will pay for a recovery residence, recovery residence living, for patients who are in an IOP program because they know it's cheaper for them i mean i'm sorry let's just be frank they know it's cheaper for them than residential so do be aware and look at the insurance policies that are covering the people that are in your area to see which ones will pay for recovery residents living for people who are in iop okay now with each level you have different levels, and most people don't move through levels of recovery resonances. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they'll go from a level three down to a level one or a level three to a level two. That is totally cool. Doesn't always happen. But let's talk about within levels. Many resonances define levels of recovery progress within the resident community, which correspond with how long they've been in the residence, recovery progress, and degree to which the Behavioral requirements have been met. Has the person attended 90 meetings in 90 days? Has the person remained clean and sober? Has the per well, obviously, if they did 90 and 90, they've been there for 90 days. How have they been doing in terms of maintaining, if you will, their rapport and doing their jobs around the house? Because in a recovery residence, people have to do chores. Everybody's living together. Somebody's got to take out the trash. Somebody's got to do the, the dishes, yada, yada. And those are the things in outside life, if you will, that often do cause conflict. So because residents are having to work together and do chores and all that kind of stuff, it does help develop their communication skills and distress tolerance. 
Each level or phase is typically accompanied by an increase in privileges. So if they've done 90 and 90, and this is just sort of your typical first step, if they've done 90, and 90 meetings in 90 days, stayed clean, and kept up with their chores, not had any conflicts, significant conflicts with, with other residents, then they may phase up, which may include an increase in privileges, greater personal autonomy, exemption from certain requirements, and possibly different physical accommodations. In some recovery residences, your first three months, you're going to be in a room with at least one other person. A lot of times it's three other people. Once you phase up, you may phase up to an individual room, which is awesome. You can see the benefit of having at least two people in a room, especially in those early weeks after leaving treatment. There's somebody there to keep eyes on one another. And it's just reality. Let, let's just face it. Because addiction is strong. Addiction can be powerful. And that addicted self, that addictive voice can get very loud in the middle of the night. So it's helpful to have people at least two to a room during those early phases. Once people step up, they often start getting more extended time away from the facility privileges. Maybe they can go, you know, on vacation for an entire weekend to see their family or whatever. It really, what privileges people do and don't have and people can and cannot earn vary so amazingly widely by each type of recovery resonance. And um, Robert pointed out that in many cases, and my experience has been, I don't know this to be 100% true, my experience has been with the Oxford House, for example, that that is a 12-step only program. They're not open to other things. My experience has been they're also not open to medication-assisted therapy, for example. That's fine. That is their, their prerogative. There are other recovery residences out there. And if you go to the NAR website, National Association of Recovery Residences, you can learn about some of the recovery residences in your area. It's by no means a comprehensive database because you don't have to be a member of NAR to have a re recovery residence. Not every state requires licensing. So it's important to know what options are available in your area. Okay. Many residences with phase systems often pair later phase residents with new arrivals in a buddy system. It makes sense. Pair somebody with somebody else who has more time at that facility, at more time in that residence, so they can say, okay, this is the way things flow around here. It's like when you would go over to your best friend's house for a sleepover or whatever. Your best friend would say, okay, yeah, mom really doesn't like it when you do that, or at, at our house, it's lights out at nine o'clock, or whatever the case may be. But it's helpful to have a buddy to kind of walk people through. It reduces anxiety, it lowers misunderstandings, and it helps the house manager or committee better design the introductory orientation to make sure that everybody understands the rules. Because, you know, there are going to be times when you've got to changes, change those things. 
A blackout period is often required in the initial phase of some recovery residences in which the new resident is required to break communication with the outside world or with their natural supports in order to stabilize and focus on their recovery. Now, this is not necessarily very culturally sensitive. So it is important to really recognize and respect the cultural values of the clients with whom we're working. If it is not okay in their culture to just cut ties with their family for three months, then we're going to have to find a different placement for them. Can the recovery residents require this? Certainly. But it is not a good fit for everyone and some people have really awesome natural supports in the, that exist so breaking ties with them may be more detrimental so you need to take it on a case-to-case -case basis a blackout period is often helpful if most of their natural supports are still stuck at that pre-recovery place where they were communicating the same way doing the same things because what do we say about insanity insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results so if you take that person and you plop them back into that environment that hasn't changed and you expect something different it may not happen because that person may not be strong enough to fight against the strength of the entire system Many residences limit the activities for new residents for a length of time after admission. These restrictions might include always being accompanied by a more senior resident when outside the home, limits to contacts with family or friends, and expectations for a higher degree of involvement in recovery support activities. It makes sense. It is really a struggle, and I would see it with my clients when, where I used to work when it would get time for them to prepare for discharge and they would have to start going out and looking for a job it was terrifying for many of them because they had to ride the bus and a lot of times they would be exposed to people on the bus who they knew from their past or they would go by neighborhoods that would be triggering or just the stress of searching for a job would increase their anxiety and it would trigger that desire to quell or numb the, the feelings that were going on. I talked about, you know, that there are different levels for recovery residences, and there are different phases within levels, but the, one of the questions is, how long do people stay in a recovery residence? And the answer depends a lot on the level. Level one and two are open-ended, with an average stay of one to three years. Okay, one to three years. Well, the really cool thing about that for people who run recovery residences is once you're full, you're full. And you've got people who are, yes, they may struggle here and there, and you may have to fill a bed here or there, but you're not going to have a high turnover, which can make recovery residences somewhat more profitable. Level three and four average three to nine months because these are expensive and since level threes are combined with IOP or PHP and level fours are basically what you would call residential, they are expensive and most people will either have to have state funding or insurance funding to stay in these placements. So once that funding runs out, they need a place to go down to. Level two is obviously the recommended 
to go down to, but it's, it depends on the person. So it can range anywhere from three months to three years. Remember, the studies have shown that the people with the best outcomes have been in a recovery residence for at least six months. So just factor that into your thinking when you're trying to look at long-term care planning for clients in their recovery. So NAR certified recovery residences meet standards addressing safety from administrative, operational, property, and a good neighbor's perspective. If you've never done it and... I don't know, well, I am weird that way. I like writing manuals and policies and procedures. Go to the NAR website, um, N-A-R-R, I believe it's .org, but I could be wrong. And they have the guidelines and the codes that you have to meet in order to be certified by NAR. And you look at them and they make perfect sense, but it is so helpful when you're designing your policy and procedure manual because every recovery residence has to have one when you're designing your recovery um, your policy and procedure manual it tells you all the things you need to think about from how do you collect money what deposits what are permanent charges what do you need to tell people ahead of time how do you get people in how do you make sure that you're keeping the neighbors happy all of those things are addressed quite a bit in depth in this. One of the things that a lot of people may make a mistake when they're thinking about recovery residences, my first thought would have been, initially, uh, would have been the farther we can get people out of the city where they can easily access the, their old people, places, and things, the safer they'll be. Well, in theory, that might be true. However, especially in level one and level two, we're encouraging people to develop increased autonomy. Many of our clients are not going to have cars, and if they have cars, they may not have driver's licenses. So what do we do? We need to make sure that these houses are in areas that provide access to affordable housing, amenities for daily life, shopping, transportation, employment, medical things. All that are easily accessible and Ubers are expensive taxis are expensive so you don't want to have to have people take long uber rides or whatever which is why a lot of recovery residences tend to be in relatively urban areas the challenge is making sure that that urban area is also health and recovery promoting the community needs to be free of drug dealing and criminal activity. Now, drug dealing happens everywhere. <laughs> let's, let's face it, we know it does. However, you don't want people literally standing out on the corner making deals because that, that's not cool. In res residential areas that provide recovery re residences, residents need to have an opportunity to integrate into the community and provide community members an opportunity to learn about recovery residences there's a big movement unfortunately against recovery residences called not in my backyard and what a lot of people don't recognize or think about is that a lot of times the people that are in the recovery residence they are clean and sober and they are going to be law-abiding and they're probably going to be less problematic than you know somebody else who could move there and 
the people who are living in recovery residences are really trying to make a new start. So there's not a risk for any extra risk than just having any old person move in, any extra risk of increasing drug activity or anything like that. So helping residents come to understand that and maybe even helping residents come to understand that, you know what, there were people that were abusing drugs or alcohol in your neighborhood long before we came. So that's generally not where you want to go with it, but that's the reality. Addiction exists everywhere. It cuts across socioeconomic stratuses. It cuts, cuts across cultures. It exists. You're not going to be anywhere and be immune from it. So helping people recognize, again, that people who are in recovery residences, one of their main missions right now is to not engage in any of those kinds of behaviors. So they're probably some of the per most perfect um, neighbors to have. Do note, if you're trying to open a recovery residence, that federal law protects persons in recovery as a protected class under the Fair Housing Act and the Amendment 42-3601-3619. You can look it up. Basically, it says a neighborhood or a city cannot prevent a person from buying a house and turning it into a recovery residence. Uh, there are a lot of little subchapters. One of my friends is our city planner, and he's very frank about the fact that recovery residences can go anywhere in the city that they want because there is nothing we can do to stop them. You probably need some sort of legal advocacy. Here's a little tip. If you have a law school in your community, that is often one of those things that the law school, the senior law students will help pro bono with in, in arguing if you need to argue about whether a recovery residence is allowed in that area. Funding. And, and this is kind of getting to where, where you're going, Rebecca, with the fact that there's a shortage of recovery residences. Recovery residences are historically self-funded and eventually become self-sustainable and use a community of volunteers. Startup costs are typically covered by the housing provider, whoever wants to buy the house, an angel investor, or a nonprofit. Startup costs can be expensive. I mean, think about how many beds you've got to buy, the, the television, the dishes, everything else. Another way you can less expensively outfit a recovery residence is to connect, especially if there's a shortage of recovery residences in your area, connect with your local 12-step groups, your AAs, your NAs, because people who have been going to 12-step fellowship for a while, and probably other programs too, I'm just more familiar with 12-step fellowship, people who've been going to the fellowship for a while and have gotten some sobriety under their belt often have stuff that to donate they've gotten to the place where they're financially stable enough where they're like yeah i wanted to redo the furniture in my living room anyway so i'll donate my whole living room suite so that and you can get lots of mattresses twin mattresses and stuff that way as well so be creative in trying to outfit a recovery residence it's not going to be the ritz carlton but it will be doable and most people at that place in their recovery are just so grateful for doable and not being in the treatment center anymore. 
So startup costs can be expensive. As a part of their recovery process, residents are expected to work, pay rent, and support the house, with each house averaging 10 residents. You do the math in your head and think about how much space each person needs, and then you try to figure out, okay, how much can people afford, assuming that in early recovery, they're probably only going to make minimum wage. And this is where you can see the rubber hitting the road. That was the analogy I was looking for earlier. And why it can be difficult to get a recovery residence started. So those are all things that you need to consider. If you can get an angel investor and you can get the furniture and everything you need, and you can buy yourself six months before you have to be full up in terms of finances, if you have enough financing to get yourself that far, then you're probably going to be fine in, in the long term, and you'll recoup those losses over several years. In some places, there are a lot of permits for recovery residences. In other places, there are none. So you need to know your local ordinances, city, county, state. Unfortunately, that's where all the red tape comes in. So who regulates these? Well, the National Association of Recovery Residences is an option. It's, if you work in behavioral health, you're from, probably familiar with JACO or CARF. NAR is kind of like JACO and CARF. It is not a mandatory certification that you have to have. Does it give your recovery residents some, I don't want to say value, but does it prove that you meet certain minimum standards? Yes, it does. So I would really recommend getting NAR certified. Compared to the cost of all the startup, NAR certification really is just a drop in the bucket, and it proves your sustainability and your credibility. Many states are starting to regulate recovery residences. So you want to look, many states are, are members of NAR and they're state associations of recovery residences. So for example, Florida is FAR, Florida Association of Recovery Residences. Tennessee is TAR, Tennessee Association of Recovery Residences. You see where we're going. So you can look for your state affili affiliate of NAR and find out what their recommendations are, find out what recovery residences exist in that area. I will note that Oxford Houses have their own entire website. So if you're looking for Oxford Houses, I would suggest starting on the Oxford House website. Anyway, you also need to check state regulating boards because, like I said, some states have started requiring permits for all levels of recovery residences, whether it's a one or a four. So make sure that you check with your local agency that does behavioral health healthcare licensing to make sure you don't need any special permits. Recovery residence services and activities. Entry into a recovery residence usually involves an application or personal interview. So it's not just a bada bing, which is good because like I said, every single recovery residence is a little bit different. Even the Oxford houses are a little bit different. Residents can expect to pay monthly fees and sign an agreement committing themselves to a minimum length of stay and adhering to clearly stated house rules that support the recovery of the individual as well as the community. Typically, there's a refundable deposit and a non-refundable administration fee required on or before move-in, just like when you're moving into an apartment. 
There may also be additional fees or fines clearly listed in the agreement for things like extra services or late payments. Some residences may require concurrent participation in outpatient treatment. A lot of times these are your level three and level, well, level three residences. Recovery residences support various abstinent-based pathways to recovery, and each residence focuses on one or more particular pathway. People seeking support for a specific, culturally congruent path to recovery should determine what recovery activities are required before accepting placement. Although they can't provide medication management, people in Level 1, Level 2, and Level, well, all levels of recovery residences can potentially use medication depending on the rules of that particular re recovery residence, and that includes medication-assisted therapy. Policies and procedures around the self-management of medications and the eligibility of individuals taking specific medications to live in the house need to be clearly stated. So we're going to talk a, a little bit about the social model approach because this is the whole crux of the recovery residence uh, model, if you will, and then we'll, we're going to kind of wrap it up. So there's an emphasis in the social model on drawing on knowledge gained through one's recovery experience to help others. So we're sharing. We're sharing what we've gone through. We're saying, I've experienced something similar like that. When this happened to me, this is what I did. We can't tell people what's going to work for them. Just like you wouldn't in meetings prescribe something for someone, you can share your own experience. Recovery operates via connections between residents, not between a resident and a professional caregiver. So recovery takes place in this new family unit, if you will, and we're just going to kind of define it as a family. All residents are consumers and providers. Everybody is giving as well as taking information, giving as well as taking resources, giving as well as taking help. Mutual support provides the basic framework for recovery. This is not where we're providing a bunch of therapeutic stuff 24-7. A positive environment encourages support for recovery so people can feel free to explore. They can feel free to say that they're having a bad day. They can feel free to express that they're having cravings or urges. And they can feel free to say, you know what, today was the best day ever. Disorders in the social model are viewed as being centered in the reciprocal relationship between the individual and his or her surrounding unit. So let's go back to what we were talking about earlier, that safe placement. Disorders are generally a way of coping or a reaction to the surrounding environment or social unit. And it's the best way the person had to deal with whatever it was at that point in time. So when we're putting somebody in a healthy environment and we're taking somebody who is healthy, you know, they went through treatment, they've got all these skills, and they may not have them down perfectly. They may be real new and still trying to learn how to do all of it, but they've got these skills. We take them and we plop them into a supportive, encouraging environment that models these same skills. What's going to happen? They are going to flourish. So we want to make sure that we recognize in these recovery residences that people are in this really uber positive environment. And that doesn't mean everybody has to be happy all the time. It means that you are safe. It means that you are 
modeling all these healthy behaviors. The social model shifts the focus to household, family, and community environment as a way to foster a culture of recovery. Instead of saying, you're the problem, we're saying there's lots of stuff that goes into creating this problem. So let's look at it. So you can create a, we can create a culture of recovery here, a safe microcosm, and then when you get out, you can replicate that in your primary residence. Residents are invited to draw on the strengths of the household and utilize peer support to shed their addictive lifestyle and reconstruct their self-identity as a person in recovery. There are a lot of questions. I know I've worked with clients who are very young, but, you know, they were going through adolescence and they were stoned most of the time. So they really didn't go through those developmental stages that they needed to go through to figure out who they were. I've been worked with people who were older when they developed their addiction issues, and they're just not sure because of losses they experienced, they're not sure who they are now, or they may not remember what they like to do anymore. They don't know who they are as a person in recovery. One of my favorite groups to do with people is called Addicted Versus Sober. And we list all the characteristics that people have in their addicted selves. And then we list all the characteristics that people have in their sober selves. And it doesn't have, when we do addicted selves, it doesn't have to be just the bad things. Some people in their addiction can be generous. Some people in their addiction can be compassionate, maybe overly compassionate. So we put all those things there. And we do sober self. And we identify things that are in both areas, you know, sort of a Venn diagram. So they can see that they're not starting necessarily from nothing. And we start identifying what they want to work towards. And we also look at, in their addicted selves, they were this way. In their sober selves, they want to be this way. If they have a self before that addictive self, that is, if their addiction started when they were in their teens or adulthood as opposed to when they were eight or nine, when they were in their sober self or if they've had periods of sobriety, what were they like? And when you start asking that question, you start helping people see that those nuggets that they want to be in their sober self already exist within them. And they just kind of have to dust them off a little bit and put them, put them back on the shelf. So recovery residences can really help people start to recognize who they want to be and start dusting off some of those diamonds within their, within their own heart. In the social model, social learning of communication, relationship, and coping skills is the main venue for people to learn. We're not going to sit in groups every day and teach assertive communication. We will teach communication by observing effective communication and if there's not effective communication especially in a level two the house manager might pull people aside and say okay clearly we have a failure to communicate so let's talk about this it's a social learning where every per nobody feels put down or i as an put down or or created as an identified patient everybody is equal and everybody has faults and everybody makes mistakes and this is a place where people can learn that that's okay. They get social support from one another. That unconditional regard. You know, Tom may be having a really bad day, but the team is there. The family's there to support him. 
and people learn life skills. Not everybody knows how to balance a budget. Not everybody knows how to search for a job or drive a car or whatever. So between all of the residents, there are a myriad of skills that are there. So residents can teach one another how to do different things. Developing a recovery lifestyle is conceptualized among residents as more than avoiding addictive substances and improving personal health. So it's not just about getting healthy and staying, staying clean. It's characterized by citizenship and recognizing the importance of living their life with regard for and respect for the people around them, in the house, in the neighborhood, and in the community at large. It's characterized by doing their fair share in terms of contributing to the household as a recovery environment, making sure they do their chores and help each other out, not just doing the bare minimum where they look and they said, well, my chore was to clean the bathroom and to do this, so I did that. Now I'm going to go in my room and play video games for the rest of the night. That can be okay once in a while, but citizenship and doing one's fair share involves being part of the whole micro-community that is the house. And recognizing how one's behavior affects that environment is a key tenet across all social model programs. So if John has a bad day and comes home and, and says, okay, I did my chores, I'm going to go play my video games, how does that affect the community? If John does that every single day for two weeks, how does that affect the community? And helping John recognize him, his impact on the community. And that goes around for every single person. So they can see examples of how their behavior is impacting others. And they can go, oh, yeah. You know, I see that when I, when I come home and I am in this wickedly irritable mood that people scatter like cockroaches. I recognize that now. Maybe I need to check that in myself. Mandatory house meetings offer opportunities for residents and staff to understand and discuss issues from a social model perspective and reinforce a recovery-oriented culture. So in these mandatory house meetings, if there is a, a lot of conflict going on, then we can step back and say from a social model perspective, what's going on to trigger this conflict? You know, where is this coming from? So we can understand a little bit more about it. The sanctuary model is not something that, to the best of my knowledge, any recovery residences have right now, but it is sort of a, a social model on steroids, if you will. When interactions in house meetings are limited to a sole focus or the meeting gets bogged down in interpersonal struggles, it's important for the house manager or the meeting leader to shift the discussion toward a broader social model perspective and ask questions like, okay, how does this issue, maybe we'll stick with John and his video games. How does John going to play video games all night, every single night, impact the overall house? What's the big deal, if you will? Could it be he's not providing support to other people? Could it be people feel rejected? You know, let's get it out there and let's look, about how, look at how it's affecting the whole house. How can house members be mobilized to address the issue? A lot of times they'll find out that when these conflicts exist and tension starts to rise, people are expecting mind reading 
or they're expecting that it is so obvious that John should realize that his behavior is negatively impacting the house, and John may be oblivious. So it's important for members to learn how to become mindful of what's going on and learn how to articulate instead of expecting mind reading. The house manager can also ask, should we discuss changes in house rules or operations to address this issue? If half the people in the house are doing the bare minimum and then just scattering to their rooms to play video games, then you're not getting a lot of give and take in that social milieu. So do we need to address video game time or operations? <clears throat> and if we did that, how would those changes affect the recovery culture of the household? Recovery residences are a necessary resource for people who are needing a safe place to reside, whether they're leaving treatment or not. Some people have been out of treatment for a while, and they're having a hard time staying clean and sober, not in treatment, and they need a safe place, and they want to live in a more controlled environment. So it doesn't have to be necessarily only people stepping out of treatment. It can be people stepping out of jail. Or, like I said, it can be people who just, they're trying to sustain their recovery and they recognize that they need a safer environment. Recovery residences range from peer-led organizations to therapeutic communities. And research has shown improved treatment outcomes at 12, 18, and 24 months for people who have lived in a recovery residence. I didn't find any studies that looked longer than 24 months, so I don't know what the outcomes would be after that. Recovery residences operate on a social model, helping people learn how to create and maintain a healthy environment and relationships with themselves and other people. Are there any questions? Pat has a very good suggestion that if you're outfitting a recovery residence, a lot of times, especially if you get your recovery res residence set up as a nonprofit, a lot of times local food banks will help out with donations. If you're trying to get set up as a nonprofit, that can involve a whole lot more red tape, but it can't hurt to ask. It can't hurt to communicate with some of the local churches who might be interested in supporting recovery. And the easiest way to find them is to find the churches that host Celebrate Recovery meetings and host and or help host 12-step meetings. And yes, Christina, in many places, almost every place that I know of, there are not enough recovery residences. We need so many more recovery residences for specialized populations, for women. Uh, there's a real lack of recovery residences for women only, or for women with children, or parents with children. There are a lot of different permutations. Sometimes you'll have a, a family where mom and dad or, or the parents both get clean and need a safe place to stay that's a little bit more structured. More often than not, what we're looking at is single parents with children who need a safe place to stay. We also have people with co-occurring disorders, people who are on methadone or medication-assisted therapy of some type, as well as very specific populations like veterans with co-occurring disorders or people who are homeless just and, and have been for a while. So there are a lot of different unique needs that are out there. 
And I really believe that there's enough housing, affordable housing available, that it's possible to make it happen. We just figure, have to figure out how to get it kick-started. And then it, I, I truly believe in my heart it would be self-sustaining. Tennessee, for example, has a whole lot of Oxford houses available to it. Let me see. If y'all want to go take your quiz, you can. And for those of you who want to stick around and chat for a minute, please feel free to do so. Um, so let's look at, so Oxford Houses of Tennessee, there's one, two, three, four, five, six pages of them, and it looks like there's about 12 per page. So there's a fair number compared to other states. Now, six times 12 is 72. Well, 72 houses, each one housing, let's say 10 people. That's 720 people. We know that there are way more than 720 people in Tennessee who need to be in a recovery residence or would prefer to be in one. So even in Tennessee where there's a lot of availability. And then you go down to Florida, which breaks my heart, and you have one, one Oxford house. And a lot of the other recovery residences have shut down, been shut down, or just left Florida partly because of all the scandal that has gone on around there, which has been terribly unfortunate and terribly punishing to the people who are desperately trying to find recovery. Let me go to the NAR website really quick. And I was right. It was naronline.org. Um, so Florida is, a, a, is an affiliate. So you can see that there are a lot of resources that are available on the different websites community unfortunately a lot of times i just have a difficulty find have difficulty finding the what they want to call the link where they have information about what recovery residences exist in that area so here certified residences <laughs> so showing 10 entries and it doesn't want to scroll and that just takes us through our A's. So it looks like there are a lot of, there are almost 400 recovery residence entries in the NAR database for Florida. So that's good. Um, unfortunately, let's see. A friend of mine was telling me there's virtually nothing, and he was right. There's virtually nothing in the Gainesville, Ocala, Lake City area. The rental fee is roughly $950 a month. And you can see that there are different priority populations, women with children, women only, LGBT, or co-educational. All righty, everybody. Thanks for being here today, and I will see you next week. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.